What is the best Christmas present someone ever gave you? Um, my dolly. And why is your dolly so special? Um, because I like playing with her and it's my favorite color. Nice. Who gave you this dolly? Um, my mom and my daddy. And what was the worst gift someone ever gave you? My dolly. Your dolly? And why is it not so special? Because it didn't come with black boots or a horsey or <laughs> a black sweater. And is this the same dolly Mommy Daddy gave you? Yes? Yeah. Well, welcome everyone, whether you are here in person or online, we're so glad that you're here. Isn't that so true about gifts sometimes? They can be the best and the worst. Hey, if you are in age three, grade three category, I want to encourage you, if you're here in person, to make your way out to the boulevard, the foyer area there, to have some fun, tailored stuff just for you. And if you are online watching with mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, whoever else is in the house with you, I want to encourage you to go to centennialroad.com and you can find wonderful content just for you as kids. Question of the day is this. I'm going to be sharing with you from my email inbox the most asked question that I get from you all. And the question is this. Jason, do you or do you not dye your hair and or beard? In order to answer that question, I brought a photo from my younger years along with me. In a few moments, you're going to see it on the screen. There's four of us in my family. There's my dad, my mom, myself, and my sister. Just for you at home and also you here this morning, call it out to me. What color happens to be my father's hair? Dark brown, black, all these things are acceptable. Okay, now switch to my mom for a moment. Call out that color. Red. How do you get ginger beard? Well, you get a ginger for a mom and a dark-haired guy for a dad. God does something amazing and creates it all over my anatomy. So here's what you got. On the top of my head, I'm 50% my dad. On the face area where my beard is, I'm 50% my mom. But if you look really closely, it's sprinkled with a little bit of wisdom. All that white stuff in there. So no, I don't dye my hair. I don't dye my beard. I don't have time for that. I'm the father of five kids. Okay, we're going to dive into this theme of love here today. Love, the third week in our Advent series we are calling The Best Gifts. You can notice our Advent wreath to my right and your left here on the stage. We are digging into this theme of love because love just so happens to be probably the most misunderstood or misused word in our language. Let me give you an example. I can say, I love pizza, and that might be true. I can also say, I love my wife. That should be true. Now, the way I love pizza and the way I love my wife should not be equal in any way, shape, or form, but this is where our English language kind of fails us a little bit because we have one word to describe a full gamut of things, the way that we feel and the way that we experience love. I shared with you humorously about my anatomy and what God did so creatively to create 
ginger beard on my person. But the truth is, I didn't always enjoy it. I didn't always love it. I wanted to be normal, whatever normal was. Do you have something about yourself that you struggle to love? Do you have something about yourself that you have struggled to love? What we're going to do is we're going to look at the scripture to kind of give us a baseline of what love is, what it's all about, and what it means for us today. So if you've got a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to flip with me to John chapter 13. I'm going to be reading the first 17 verses from this portion of scripture, including all the way through to verse 17. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything that he had come, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe and wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. This is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know all these things, God will bless you for doing them. It's a really interesting scene in the life of Jesus. What's so interesting for me is it's contained in the book of the Bible called John. That's what we read from. And John happens to be one of four biographies in the New Testament, starting in the book of Matthew all the way to Revelation, on the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, however, is the only one that gives us a snapshot into this particular moment in the life of Jesus. What's cool about having four biographies is each one of them gives you a different layer on who this Jesus guy is, and so they're all worth spending some time with to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. In John, it's sort of kind of uh, universally accepted that the author of this book was also by the same name, John, who happened to be a disciple of Jesus, one of the participants in this activity and experience. And the, and the Bible refers to this John as the one who Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. The love sort of gospel is what 
the book of John is known for. And what's really cool about that is you'll get little snippets in the life of Jesus that are unique to this particular biography, but yet linked to the other ones as well. This story, as I said, is unique to John, but what's really cool about it is it's a part of a broader story that we often refer to numerous times. Every time we get ready to celebrate communion, for example, we talk about this moment in time in the life of Jesus. We talk about a little while on during the meal, how Jesus instituted communion by breaking bread and sharing a cup of wine with his friends and talking about remembering him until the day when he would be together with them again. But John gives us some footnotes before all of that unfolds about what's happening, and that's with this foot washing experience. What makes it really, really cool? The Passover. The Passover is why they were together. The Passover festival. And what the Passover festival and feast was, was a moment in time designed to remember what God had done to rescue the broader Israelite community from captivity when they happened to be in captivity in the nation of Egypt many moons ago from this point when our story is picked up. So it was not unheard of that groups of people, men and women gathered together, would celebrate this feast, this festival with one another. What makes this unique on top of all of that is that every single part of this experience had deep spiritual significance. The way things were set at the table, who was seated where, what was on the menu, when they eat, certain things. All of it was tied to remembering this big moment in time for their community called the, uh, when, Jesus re- or when they were rescued from captivity in Egypt. And what's cool about the table in particular, when you guys and myself, we think about tables, we might think of them very differently than what they would have looked like in this day and age. The table that they would have ate at looks like a, a, the letter C, the capital letter C, so to speak. You got two points facing down, facing south, let's call it that, and the back of the C facing north. And each one of them would have been seated at their own space in that area. But seated means differently than what you and I would understand. The table itself would be about 18 to 20 inches off the ground. So they would have been more like reclining, relaxed, at the table, they would have had maybe pillows and other textiles and blankets to lay down at so that each one of them could see each other and they could do one of my most favorite things, which is talk over one another at the dinner table. That would have been the challenge of the space and the environment. It also left every part of themselves visible to one another. You can't hide your feet when you're reclining in this kind of position. And here's the thing about feet in this day and age. Many of the roads and the trails weren't paved, weren't cobblestone, weren't wood that you walked on. They were dirt. They were dirt, and dirt would get caked on your feet. They didn't have the privilege of living through winter as you and I know it. And so what, what, what they would wear on their feet are sandals, and their sandals were quite basic. They'd be a piece of leather or something of that nature strapped to the bottom of their foot to prevent them from stepping on like poisonous bugs, snakes, sharp rocks, things like that. But there was not sort of any sort of support or coverage on the rest of your foot. And because of the, the dirt trails all over the place, the dirt roads, you'd often get your feet caked full of this stuff. 
One of our favorite things to do as a married couple is go hiking, and we did a trip in the Phoenix area a number of years back, and as we were hiking in that area, there was this red dust, and I was glad that I brought my less than perfect hiking shoes with me because that dust forever changed the way those shoes looked like. It stuck to you. It clung to you. So when you go over to somebody's house, you'd be full of all this dust. You couldn't take an Uber lift there. You didn't ride the camel. You walked places most often. And as you showed up at their house, your feet would be dirty. Perhaps the rest of you would not be dirty because you actually bathed that day. And you'd go into their house to visit or share a meal. In those rooms, in those houses where you're invited into, right at the doorway, you'd be greeted not with hand sanitizer. You'd be greeted with a wash basin. A wash basin where you could wash your feet. So when you sat at the table, you were on the blankets, the pillows, all the wonderful textiles. You didn't bring your dirt into that space and let it rub off onto all of those pieces. And the task of washing feet was seen as one of the least favorite things in the world to do. In fact, if you were really, really mad at your kids, you'd make them the foot washer for the day having to work on people's feet, get all that stuff off. Or if you happen to have a servant in your household, that would be one of their responsibilities to do is wash people's feet as they came into your space. So what's really interesting is we're at this dinner meal and Jesus noticed that everybody has dirty feet. Nobody's washed their feet. Nobody's offered to. So he gets up from the table, takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and he starts washing the feet of his friends. A task that they wouldn't expect someone of Jesus' status to engage in. Then he gets to this conversation with Peter. I love Peter. I grew up with a guy who wasn't called Peter, but very similar. One of those guys that just says whatever they are thinking with no filter attached. It's wonderful. And what was really cool is we could feed information to Tyrell and be like, dude, you should say this. And then he would say it and he'd get in trouble and we'd all benefit from that in some way. You know what I mean? You got a friend like that? Maybe you're much nicer friends than I was. And that's awesome. Gets this moment between Peter. I mean, Jesus has already started washing other people's feet. Gets to Peter, and Peter asks this question. So are you going to wash my feet? That's what I've been doing. Yeah, and Peter says, not a chance. No, Mm-mm, it's not happening. And Jesus responds. He says, unless I wash you, you won't be clean. The first thing that we need to learn about love is this. True love only comes from God the Father. True love only comes from God the Father. And unless we are washed by this love, none of us will be clean. None of us will be clean. No matter how hard we try, no matter what kind of deodorant or soap that we use, none of us will be clean. We have to be washed in the love of God. We have to be washed in the love of God. And for some of us, that's a really challenging thing to do. Because when we don't love ourselves, how could anybody else love us? When we struggle with a part of who we are, why would God look at us and say, you are worthy of love? But the truth is, God sees all of us as worthy of love. 
No matter where we are or what we've done, he sees us as worthy of love. And unless we're washed by that love, that cleansed by that love, we will not belong to him. It's quite simple, but yet quite profound. That's where we start. How do we do that, Jason? What does that look like? It starts here. Recognizing that, A, you're worthy of love. And B, receiving the love that God freely gives and freely has for you. That's where it starts. That's where the adventure begins, right in that moment. And that opportunity is available to everyone at all times, everywhere. The first thing that we learn about love is that true love only comes from God the Father. But the conversation doesn't start there, or it doesn't stop there. Peter, Peter kind of keeps going. He, he hears Jesus saying, unless, unless I wash you, you're not going to be clean, and you're not going to belong to me if you're not clean. So Peter ups the ante. He's like, okay, well, wash my head and wash my hands too. Do the whole, the whole conglomerate. Like, let's get it all done. <laughs> and Jesus is like, look, if you've bathed, I don't need to wash your whole body. For some of us, we've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. We've started that relationship. We've started that connection. We've been through a variety of different phases of what that looks like. Some ups, some downs, some in-between spaces. We're all a work in progress, becoming the people God has created us to be. It takes time to do so. And sometimes when we have that one part of us that we wish would be different than it is right now, we get frustrated and angry. And we're like, man, I wish this part would just shift or change. And it's taking time, more time than we want it to. And yet that's the, that's the spot where Jesus wants to continue to work on us. We might want to be like, well, do this instead, or this instead, or this instead. And he's like, no, no, I want to work here. This is the part that needs my grace. This is the part that needs my love. It could be in our minds, the way we think about ourselves or other people. Any prejudices or racist tendencies that we carry, that, that's where it could start. It could be in what we choose to do in our free time. Right? If we look at our browsing history, the things that are less than honorable to God that we've been looking at or connecting with. Maybe it's going to deal with that. I don't know, but he does. See, oftentimes we're like, if we have a relationship with God, we want, we want to be completely overwhelmed by God's love again, which is really, really good. But sometimes he just wants to have surgical procedure to zero in on one part of our lives that he needs to get right. And maybe you're in that space and you can identify with that. It's the same thing that he's always telling me. Well, maybe he wants to do something supernatural in that space. Jesus continues after this interaction with Peter and just washing everybody's feet around the table, including, including the friend that he knows is going to betray him in a few moments, a man named Judas, sitting at the same table, witnessing the same conversation, being a part of the same activity. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed by this guy and still demonstrates love to him. It's interesting. Here's what we learn. Second thing about love. Love, true love, 
not only comes from God the Father, true love is not manipulative in nature. True love is a choice. It's not about manipulation. It's about choice. This is kind of challenging, I think, for us to understand as human beings in the 21st century. Sometimes we do an activity, we engage in something, and we're like, if we do this, then somebody's going to do this for us. We're going to get a rate of return, a return on our investment, so to speak. Yet what's interesting to me is Jesus does the same demonstration of love to everybody at this table, knowing that there'll be varying degrees of choice that these gentlemen end up making. From Peter going like, yeah, I'm willing to look silly and foolish by asking a lot of questions, to the others who are sitting silently letting this happen, to Judas, who's getting ready to betray Jesus for money. And yet, Jesus in no way, shape, or form is trying to manipulate the people around him by the way he is loving. And i got to be honest with you, that's not always the way that I love Maybe you're better than me, and that's really awesome if you are. But sometimes I think I do certain things because I'm trying to dictate whatever outcome I'm looking for. God doesn't do that. God simply loves and lets us choose our own response to his love. It's a wonderfully powerful thing, but also quite sobering when you think about it. Is the way that I choose to love reflective of that kind of love? After washing everybody's feet, after sitting back down on the table, the conversation continues. Jesus says something like, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what I've done for you? This is the menial task that nobody else was willing to do, and yet Jesus was willing to do it. Jesus was willing to serve the people around him that he cared about in this way. Here's the third thing that we're learning about love. Love isn't always convenient. Love isn't always convenient. Man, it's so nice when love is convenient. Like I can call up a pizza place and in 10 minutes I can get a pizza ready to go. That's called convenient love right there. But true love isn't always convenient. True love happens sometimes in the middle of the night when you get woken up. True love happens sometimes when you're on your way to another place and somebody needs to really talk. You know when they walk up to you, they don't have like a number on their forehead, but you just have this, this inkling like this is going to be a longer conversation. And by conversation, I mean it's going to be one-sided where they talk at you the entire time and you're supposed to stay engaged with eye contact and loving body language going like, yeah, yeah, I believe in you. And you're really just thinking, I got to go. This is going to wrap up at any time. True love is like working with that neighbor who just, you'd rather let your dog do the, your, their business on their yard because that would be much easier than having a relationship with them. Love isn't always convenient. Love isn't always convenient. And I think that's probably the most potent thought for us here in this year of 2020. Convenience. It's not convenient what we've been living and working through. It's far less than that. Love isn't always convenient. 
Jesus talks about what he is doing in terms of setting an example. He's like, you call me teacher and rabbi, and rightfully so, because that's what I am. But if I'm willing to do this, then what, what should you be willing to do to show the people in your world that you're willing to love them? He goes on to say that the message isn't greater or more important than the message sender. The message sender. Jesus himself recognizes that he's the message. He's the message of hope and peace and love in our world. He's the message that needs to be translated not only by what we say, but also by what we do. And our willingness to serve people around us, even when it's not convenient, even in a way that doesn't mean we're going to get anything back, that is the true expression of love. Later on, the book of John describes it like this, greater love has no one than this, that he would give his life for his friends. Because love isn't convenient. It's not manipulative. True love comes from God the Father, and it's whole, and it's good. Okay, so what do we do with all that? If that's what love actually is, what does that mean for me today, right now, here? For some of us, We have to find the courage to let God love us. We have to find the courage to let God love us. Some of us are like Peter, and we're like, you are not washing my feet. You're not washing my feet. I don't know you. I don't want anything to do with you. You're not connecting with me in any way, shape, or form. That's phase one. If you want to experience love that's really true and deep, you have got to let God love you. Even the parts of you that you don't love, let them love you. The parts that struggle and go like, why do I look like this? Why do I think like this? Why am I this way? Let God love you in those spaces. Invite his love right into that space and let him change you. We need to be transformed by that love. That is the only way that we can find a consistent way forward. That's it. We have to embrace the reality that God wants to love us. Sometimes it's easier said than done. But it's so important for us to understand. You want to experience freedom and joy and life and hope. It starts there. It starts there. But here's the second iteration, if I can call it that on what we can do with this example of love that Jesus designs for us. And the question is this, around this second thing that we can do. Are there people around you that are signaling they might need some love? There was a sobering moment for me this week as a parent when one of my sons spoke to my wife and told her this. Hey, mom, I got a really good connection with you. But sometimes it feels like dad likes screens more than me. I work from home sometimes. I'm on my email, on my computer. Sometimes I'll watch a program on Netflix or a streaming service. 
Sometimes I might actually play a little bit of a video game on my phone. But in that moment, that hard, raw, honest moment, one of my boys was saying, you know what? I just need to feel some love from my dad. And that's hard when you're confronted with that. To be like, my goodness, how do you not see? I've done this and this and this and this, but love isn't manipulative in nature. So coming out with a list of things on the way that I've loved them, well, it's not helpful in the moment. Much easier with a four-year-old when they run into the space and say, Dad, I need a hug. That I can do. That's a signal I understand. Sometimes the signals that we're given about the, with the people around us are easier for us to translate than others. But in any way, shape, or form around us, people are indicating to some degree that they need love. And if we've experienced the love of God and it's transformed us, we get to. We get to. We have the responsibility and the opportunity to splash that love around on the people around us. Even when it's not convenient. In a way that's not manipulative. But in a way that's honest and true and real. Love is one of the best gifts we've ever been given. But a great gift is only a great gift when we take it and we apply it and we live from that space. And that's my hope and my prayer for you and for me here today, that we would let God love us. And anyone around us that's signaling some sort of need of love, that we'd be willing, that we'd make the choice to love them right where they are. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful that your love never runs out on us, never gives up, doesn't shy away from tough conversations with us, and that it always reminds us that you are good, you are true, you are real, and you care. So Father, I understand that so many of us have yet to experience this kind of love. So if there's anybody who's listening today or here in person that has yet to experience who you are, I pray you'd give them the courage to make their choice to let them love you. By simply saying, God, I, I, I need to experience this love that I've heard all about. Help me to do that. And I recognize that some of us need to move from that space because we've been experiencing your love and letting you serve us and guide us and cleanse us in a variety of ways in different spaces. But now you're, you're kind of wanting to use us to demonstrate your love to the people around us in some way. Sometimes we get easy signals like people asking us for a hug and in a COVID safe way because they're in our bubble, we're able to do that. Other times they're a little bit more challenging where it's a, a coworker or uh, a neighbor responding more with anger than anything else. There's something deeper going on. Would you allow us to recognize those signals and give us the courage that we need to engage in that reality with love? Father, you first loved us. And because of that reality, we have the honor and the privilege to love other people. Would you help us to be known as a people of love? Wherever we go, wherever we are, wherever you send us to be. 
Father, would you bless us and protect us? Would you be gracious to us and smile upon us? Grant us your favor and your peace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.